Ideas in STEM Ed is a production of the Idea Engineering Student Center at UC San Diego, which works to promote community, success, and inclusion at all levels. My name is Darren Lapomi, Professor of Nanoengineering and Chemical Engineering and Faculty Director of the Idea Center. The purpose of this podcast is to provide a forum for the discussion of innovative and inclusive approaches to teaching and mentoring, and to support the personal and academic flourishing and success of students in science and engineering. To learn more about the Idea Center, visit jacobschool.ucsd.edu front idea. Dr. Wendy Marie Ingram is an advocate for mental health in academia. She is the founder and CEO of Dragonfly Mental Health, a nonprofit that works to improve the mental health of researchers, especially trainees such as graduate students and postdocs. Wendy earned her PhD in molecular and cell biology at Berkeley and was a postdoctoral fellow in psychiatric epidemiology at Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Through Dragonfly, Wendy has spoken at many institutions and as a consultant has developed individualized plans for institutions seeking to improve the mental health of their researchers. Wendy Ingram, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. What is psychiatric epidemiology? Um, Well, epidemiology is the study of populations and um, usually the causes uh, or certainly at least the correlations with with health conditions. And um, so that's why I was in the School of Public Health. Um, but psychiatric epidemiology focus is a subdiscipline of that that focuses in on the uh, mental disorders, the psychiatric conditions that, at least in the U.S., are enumerated um, quite thoroughly in the uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual, now on its fifth edition, uh, so the DSM. Five. Um, any of those psychiatric conditions um, that are not considered, but often have many neural overlaps with uh, neurology and and many other conditions. Um, the psychiatric epidemiology is 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 what uh, focuses in on those diseases. After your PhD, did you take time doing something else, or did you go right into the postdoc? So I actually, right after, the only way I got out of my PhD was by, um, well, this is, it's a little unfair to phrase it that way, but um, for anyone who has completed a PhD, especially in the biological sciences, they may recognize this story of uh, finish my work, finish my dissertation, everything looks good. Um, Oh, but don't you want to just finish this last experiment? Oh, oh, don't you want to just kind of stick around and train this new postdoc to take over your work? Well, wait, wait, we just have like one more paper to write. And so things were dragging out um, about nine months or so longer than I really had anticipated. Um, And ultimately, I booked a one-way ticket to Thailand and told my PI, I'm leaving May 13th. (laughs) No. Um, so I went to Thailand for about three months and also, um, spent a little bit of time in India, uh, following my PhD before starting my postdoc, um, on the East coast. <laughs> so what was it that made you switch fields so dramatically one would think? So the, so my research interests have really always been in mental health. So that at least was consistent, um, but I was very focused on, on the molecular underpinnings of psychiatric disease. How, how do uh, molecules and genes and genetics and um, different kinds of biology that as we can measure it so beautifully with biochemistry and molecular biophysics and molecular and cell biology and neuroimmunology, all these wonderful things I had um, very intentionally studied. Uh, how do those contribute to psychiatric disease, this really interesting constellation of illnesses that involve, I would say, our most complicated organ, the brain. Um, But at the same time, really quite clearly, since even I was in graduate school, um, there was always another piece uh, of, of life in the, in the academic arena that was influencing uh, me at the same time, and I engaging in it, which was advocating for the mental health of academics themselves. Um, you know, initially my, P- my fellow PhD students at UC Berkeley, 
And then at Johns Hopkins, the same thing. And ultimately, um, it, that kind of advocacy work on the grassroots level while we were doing good in our local space, um, there just seemed like there was such a, an opportunity and a gap that needed to be addressed in, in academia worldwide where um, these small efforts, while very impactful and wonderful in their own way, um, you know, weren't creating the systemic change we really need as well. And so in 2019, I both applied for my first faculty tenure track position um, and made it pretty far, but it was kind of more testing the waters. Um, But I had my entire research plan um, for for a bunch of biologists um, studying microglia in the uh, the role, uh, their role in depression and treatment resistant depression and how does electroconvulsive therapy work? This was what I was planning on studying. Mm-hmm. Um, and that same fall, I was invited to give a plenary talk at a scientific conference in Berlin talking about my advocacy work. And that advocacy work really, really generated a huge, overwhelming response from from the audience. And it became abundantly clear that there was a global need. This was not something exclusively to the little realms of academia I've been in. Mm -hmm. Um, And and just it, it opened my eyes to, okay, well, what do we do? How do we do this? What would be the path if we were to? And, um, as you know, with a very healthy respect, I would I would say um, for tenure track positions, I knew I couldn't do both, and so it really came down to a question of what do I want to spend my time and effort on right now, mm-hmm. and what's going to give me what's going to feel the best um, in the moment, and ultimately, you know, just to kind of say, well, what made me change field so dramatically. Um, it was loss. It was the loss of friends and colleagues and classmates, and specifically um, someone who's uh, we're recording on May twenty third, um, twenty twenty two. And this was this is this is my friend Chris Alvaro, Doctor Chris Alvaro's birthday. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a it's a very hard. It's a it's a tough day. It's a tough anniversary for me um, because we named Dragonfly Mental Health in honor of Dr. Chris Alvaro, who we lost to suicide and depression mm-hmm. at the age of 29 in uh, 2018, and it was um, just something that couldn't wouldn't let me rest and wait until I got tenure in order to do more advocacy work, um, which I knew was kind of the, if the, this or that, so either you Mm. go get tenure, (laughs) um, which is a feat in and of itself, uh, for five to seven years or so. And then, and then you can maybe spend a little more time doing other things. Um, so for me, it really came down to immediacy and where can I do the most, um, in this world. And, there are lots of other amazing neurobiologists out there studying microglia, and <laughs> they maybe don't have the same ideas as me exactly. But um, I, I figured I there are very few people who were really kind of positioned in a way for me to, and motivated in the way that I was um, to spearhead uh, and, and lead these efforts um, to, to build Dragonfly Mental Health as a global organization. That's that's wonderful. Um, I I can see on a, I feel on a small scale, a little bit of the, I don't know if surprise is the right word, but where you were asked in the situation where you were asked to speak, not about your scientific work, but about your advocacy work. Um, last two years ago, I, I put a YouTube video up about my own struggles with generalized anxiety disorder and different physiological sequelae I've had. And treatment that I've undergone. And then we actually met a few months later um, at the at the Beckman uh, uh, Scholars Symposium, Beckman Foundation Symposium. Um, and I was asked, you know, officially to talk about mental health in academia on a panel uh, with with you. And, um, and I think that that also 
influenced my own interest in student student services, student success uh, uh, services, and uh, and and now ultimately, you know, um, academic administration or leadership and the student side of things. So I, I definitely understand the, the, the call. Um, it, there are a lot of organic materials chemists, but not all of them have the same, uh, <laughs> the same um, uh, interest in, in um, student advocacy and, and mental health, I think. Um, we are rare beasts, you and I. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask uh, ask you what uh, what is special about graduate school or postdoc or or being a researcher in academia that makes it especially those individuals especially vulnerable to mental health challenges. There's three kind of domains that that can quite easily be pointed to, I think, and. Um, you know, it, it's tough because everybody is unique and everybody has their own personal lived experience and different biology and different upbringing and different experiences in life. And um, so each person is, is going to be different. But um, for academics, what we're seeing in literature and research that's now um, being done, um, and and we need a lot more of it, by the way. So call to action. <laughs> but um, you know, we're we're kind of seeing some numbers like six to eight times higher rates of depression and anxiety among ac- graduate students than the general population. Um, we are seeing in certain research that people with higher IQ and higher educational attainment report higher rates of uh, depression and anxiety and mood disorders like bipolar disorder as well. Um, And what's very concerning is that also what we're seeing is that these folks are less likely to seek treatment um, for these conditions, even though they are, uh, you know, no, we do not understand them to the point of some of the other physical illnesses or heart disease or cancer maybe, but also it hasn't been funded quite as thoroughly as cancer. Um, Unfortunately, I'd like to see that change as well. Um, But but we do know a lot about them and we do know that the vast majority of depression, um, you know, cases uh, respond to first line therapy. So like that, that is a really, really good thing to know that a lot of people don't know. Um, and so there's, there's a dearth across everyone, um, in, in the world and in society and the U S, um, as well. Uh, but it, it pervades academia as well, a dearth of mental health literacy, basic knowledge about the both biological and, um, environmental influences that cause and lead to depression, lead to anxiety disorders, lead to OCD or, um, uh, different like bipolar disorders, things like that. And these things, um, we're now getting from the epidemiology, which looks at large populations. Um, we're really getting the sense that this is affecting academics at higher rates. So why you asked why? And one of the things is we don't know, maybe people who end up, um, there are probably individual characteristics. We know there's genetic components to all of these things. Um, some neurodevelopmental components. uh, And so it's going to depend on the individual to a certain degree. And maybe there's something about these, uh, some of these illnesses or some of the underlying or related biology of these illnesses that actually give rise to some of the things that make an excellent academic. (laughs) Um, So some, some folks have, have quipped to me before that, um, you know, having, having a surgeon with OCD is actually a great thing. Uh, they, <laughs> they're going to make sure that everything is done exactly right, <laughs> precisely the way it's supposed to. Um, but the, there, there are benefits and we've, we've heard that certainly from the bio, the, um, the folks with bipolar disorder, um, that the hypomanic episodes can really, um, allow their brain to work in a way, in a creative way that is so beneficial to them that actually gives them an edge in the academic field that mm-hmm. requires that kind of creativity and, 
and uh, intensity and ability to go for many, many weeks without very much sleep. Um, but uh, bipolar disorder is also a potentially lethal disease. It's something that I have. And, um, you know, it's, I do see great benefits uh, with, with certain aspects of the way my brain works. Um, but then depressive episodes, it can be, it is potentially lethal. It's really, really dangerous. So I have to, it's a double-edged sword, so to speak. Um, and not all mental illnesses have good sides necessarily, but, um, you know, that's, that's one potential hypothesis around on the individual component that folks, um, with higher IQ, with higher education, equipped for higher educational attainment, um, who do decide to go for it, um, may have neural diversity that kind of lends itself a little bit more to higher susceptibility to these, these illnesses. Another thing is, um, the pressure it's so high, it's so intense. And, um, the, you know, and you probably as a faculty member know better than most um, over your career, probably seeing like what the expectations are and how they just keep growing, mm-hmm. uh, even though it's one person. Um, you know, so for from, from my perspective and speaking to folks that, um, you know, got their PhDs years and years and years ago, um, there was one, one faculty at UC Berkeley who was like, well, yeah, I was, a, I, I had, I had a tenure track position when I was 28. And I was like, I didn't graduate until I was. At <laughs> um, and then I had to go do a five-year postdoc. Like what, this is not what mm-hmm. <laughs> is not comparable anymore. Um, so it, there's, 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 you know, greater and greater expectations of what um, research goes into constituting a, um, a nature paper, a cell paper, uh, uh, science paper, things like that. Um, there's also problems with the fact that these things are all behind paywalls. Um, so the, the open access movement is interesting, um, uh, counter to, uh, this, this archaic system that did used to be, paper printing and journals being mailed out to people and and only certain individuals with certain backgrounds being able to access higher education. Um, The diversity within the system and how that system uh, either does or does not support their growth and their inclusion is a big systematic issue um, and has a lot more pressure, adds a lot more pressure to women, people of color, people from socioeconomic status um, that were previously precluded from being even invited into this, this club yeah. um, of higher academic learning. And then um you know, and then the greater level, speaking as a um, mental health informaticist and, and um, uh, someone, you know, psychiatric epidemiologist, the, the mental access to mental health uh, and, and really good mental health care is a huge challenge in a lot of areas, including the U.S. And um, so getting access to that care in a timely manner um, is, is a big component as well. And that's no different from, and sometimes even harder for academics than people who, you know, finished their undergrad and got a job that has a healthcare system that they can go and, you know, they decide they need some, uh, therapy for depression or anxiety. Um, they get an appointment next week. Um, it, at universities, which is usually where graduate students get their health care, um, you know, I was at Berkeley and there was this, at least a six week waiting period from when yeah. I finally broke down and was like, OK, well, I probably need some help now. I'm really at my wits end. I can't hold it together anymore um, Do you find- I reached out for help. And it was like over a month. <laughs> yeah. Do, do you find, Wendy, that primary care doctors are maybe an underutilized resource in this regard? Because I think that, you know, they it, it's, it's often easier to get an appointment with your PCP than it is with your campus mental health resources. 
I do think it's an underutilized resource. And one of the things that is interesting from the medical informatics field is that the vast, vast majority of antidepressants, which treat both depression and anxiety and a whole host of other psychiatric conditions as a first line treatment, like OCD, um, many, many conditions benefit from SSRIs, seroton selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, as a first line approach. And that is something that the vast majority are prescribed by PCP, by primary care yeah. physicians, not by psychiatrists. Um, but there's also some problems there. And one of them is societal and stigma-based is that most people wait six to eight years after the onset of symptoms to seek treatment for depression. This is incredible. Like imagine doing that for cancer. You're yeah. like, it's, it's pre-screening it's, it's, you know, uh, the prevention is the best medicine. And so the earlier people, um, but the, but this is driven by stigma. People are worried about, um, people judging them, pe especially people who their mind and their brain, <laughs> like academics, um, identify their, their mind and their brain as their most useful tool, um, that they rely on. And so there's a huge, huge, huge stigma for seeking care for yeah. that. I, I think in the case of, of, uh, of anxiolytic medication in particular, I think we are sometimes concerned that we would lose our edge, that, uh, it would numb the peaks and that we, we need the anxiety in order to fuel the creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, when I was, a student, you know, going back to undergrad, I always felt as though there was a gun to my head, like almost literally, like I almost felt like pressure on my, on my skull, um, that would just drive me like an overclocked microprocessor. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I don't know whatever my, my rating was, <laughs> whatever Q factor, whatever it is, but, but I was, I was getting more out of it than I was like endowed with. <laughs> and I felt like I just had to keep up that intensity to, uh -huh. to achieve what it, you know, whatever is success, such as it, such as it was. And, um, you know, I'm thinking you said six to eight years before somebody, um, starts seeking help. I'm thinking about my first, you know, onboarding visit with my primary care doctor 10 years ago, and I got a diagnosis of hypertension and I said, no, it's only high at the doctor. And so I got the blood pressure cuff and I monitored it five times a day for two weeks. And I brought back to him the printout and I said, look, it's fine. So <laughs> from, from hypertension to white coat hypertension and, mm -hmm. but the, you know, but he probably should have followed up with the question, like, is it just doctor's offices or is it literally every time you are, uh, engaging in a social situation or teaching or working with a mentee or working with the dean or the department chair. Um, and of course, the answer would be, well, okay, um, it's basically high all the time. <laughs> and uh, but not when and, I'm alone in a room with my blood pressure. Right, cuff. exactly. <laughs> right. With, yeah. the, with the door closed. And after I've meditated for five minutes. <laughs> and, <Hey. laughs> uh, and then finally, uh, you know, two primary care doctors later, I just said, look, I can't sleep. What can you do for me? I'm like, I had a, a harrowing year in 2021, um, multiple, um, you know, lost multiple people close to me, including my father. Um, and I was sleeping like five hours a night for all of 2021, um, max, like I, I would, I wouldn't fall asleep until midnight. Then I'd wake up at three 30 and not be able to fall back asleep. And so, uh, you know, I was concerned when the doctor said, well, there are these treatment options available. There's CBT, there is cognitive behavioral therapy. There is, uh, there are SSRIs and, um, and I was worried like that, that, uh, that I would lose my edge, that I wouldn't be able to 
produce anymore. But then I realized, you know, after being in treatment that this was not helping me. It was not like an overclocked mm -hmm. microprocessor. Like mm -hmm. that's not how my brain worked. I was, this was impeding me. It was causing me to, to say no to meetings, to say no to grant proposals because I didn't, you know, want to get rejected or whatever. You know, it was, it was really a, a ball and chain on my life. Um, mm -hmm. And it did take, you know, too long um, from, you know, 18, probably 16, when I realized that I, that I had serious anxiety to 38 and, uh, uh, it was, it was a long time. Yeah. Yeah. That's far too common of a story too. Um, but I'm glad you're sharing it because I think it's so important to get that message across to, folks that look up to you, that are your teaching, that are going to see you as Dean now and uh, be, um, you know, just think, assume you have it all together and you've never had any problems. Um, because the default is not to talk about these things, is not to share um, these, these kinds of experiences or struggles publicly, um, let alone, you know, officially in a in, in an academic and professional setting. That's just, mm -hmm. you know, it hasn't been done. And the that has really caused a huge burden unnecessarily on a lot of folks who are probably struggling with the exact same thing as you and, um, you know, really resonate with the, with what you just said about your worries about seeking treatment and also concept of, well, no, 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 this gives me my edge. And, you know, there's, there's this, this, um, power of storytelling that people who know you and look up to you and know your name and know your science and know your research are going to hear this and hear your previous story and, you know, any, anywhere and everywhere you talk about it and just, just open their minds and realize that they're not alone and um, that there is a way out. And it's, it's, a, it's better than <laughs> yeah. uh, the current situation potentially. Yeah. And, and I realized too, that I'm in a privileged position. I'm, I'm a tenured faculty member. Um, I, you know, I've had some amount of professional success and I can get away with, you know, get away with saying these things because I'm not worried that if I said in a, in a job application that I've overcome a, you know, a, you know, moderate psychiatric issue that, uh, that I'm not going to get the job right. So mm -hmm. it's, it's not like we're expecting people to, uh, just divulge every thought that's gone through their mind. Um, but at least when certain people, you know, in there that they might look up to, uh, are open about it, it might at least encourage them to seek, uh, to seek help. I wanted to ask what's, what's the, the difference between good, you know, stress that might be stress that will, that will help you write that paper, like mm -hmm. challenge stress. Mm -hmm. And when does it cross over in, and, and sadness, you know, something didn't work, of course, I'm going to be sad about it, right? That's only natural. And when does it go from, from normal to pathology? When, when does it mm -hmm. become dangerous? So, one of the things that I've heard from uh, professional psychiatrists that we refer to, because myself and Dragonfly are not in, in the business of delivering health care or um, health advice, um, we're delivering health information, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and trying to do that. So just to make that abundantly clear, I'm not a yes, disclaimer. psychologist. <laughs> Um, but I am a mental health researcher. I know a, a lot about this field and I work very closely with clinicians, psychiatrists and psychologists. And um, what Dr. Ray DiPaolo, who's been treating patients for 30 some odd years at Johns Hopkins and was the former head of that um, department, 
and the current president of the National Network's Depression Centers, um, he recently uh, answered some questions for Dragonfly on something called Dragonfly Asks the Experts. And um, he, we asked him, when is the right time to seek care for your mental health? And he's to boil it down, it's a great thing and it's way better coming from him. But um, the takeaway message was if you're considering it, it's probably a good idea to check in. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, If you're already there, uh, you know, even considering it, you probably should have done it before. (laughs) Um, Because he he never in seeing 20,000 or so patients over his his career, um, he said he could count three people who quote unquote came in too soon. So the vast majority of folks um, really just just are are not getting care when it's very appropriate um, and very helpful um, at those earlier stages where Mm -hmm. it's easier to treat, where it's faster. There aren't there haven't been a pylon of a whole bunch of other conditions and issues and, and severe sleep disorders now tied to, um, your depression or your anxiety or heart conditions that are now tied to that, or, um, you know, these, these other kinds of things that play into it, um, and all of these illnesses. And so, uh, that's kind of the, the shorter pithier version. (laughs) Um, but you know, another way to look at it would be from kind of the mental health spectrum. There's like, healthy, mentally healthy. There's stress, which everybody has planned and unplanned stress in their life. Um, you know, which can range from knowing that you have a test coming up or knowing that you have a pre a tenure, um, track position interview coming up or, uh, postdoc talk or, you know, whatever it is, you've got an, an anticipated or something happens in your life. The experiment fails or the animal facility, like, you know, all the power goes out for three days or something like, you know, some catastrophic, huge thing, or I don't know, a pandemic hits and everybody stops working for two years. Um, (laughs) uh, You know, things outside your control, which are stressful. Um, But that movement from stressed to healthy again is usually pretty easy and usually pretty quick. Distress is another stage past that which doesn't meet the criteria for any of these illnesses, where if you do go to a psychologist, if you do go to your PCP, if you do go to a psychiatrist, you know, there's distress and then there's disease. And those two things are differentiated by whether or not you meet clinical criteria for a disease but distress is a very, very common state for a lot of people to be in. And that is a state that might be quote subclinical, but still you're, it's not easy. It's not quick to get back to that bounce back to that mentally healthy state. And so folks in that gray zone, that kind of area um, really is probably a a huge chunk of, of folks for a long period of time, which can eventually get into that disease state. Um, the disease state can also be, people can have illnesses like yourself, like me, that, um, we treat, we find the right treatment for us and for our situation that balances, um, what we care about in our own personal lot and professional lives. And then we can be in a mentally healthy state and still have a, have a disease. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then crisis is that far end of the spectrum, which far, far, far too often we let people get to and we let ourselves get to. And that's when people become suicidal. That's when people are um, experiencing a psychotic episode or a panic attack. And that's a really tough state and it's acute and it's emergent. And, and often the person is not able to handle it and control it themselves. And they really need a supportive, educated um, community around them that knows how to respond and how to help them in that moment um, and get them to the care that they need. So um, the other way to look at your question is um, to say, uh, uh, you know, how easy is it for you to get bounced back to a mentally healthy state? And if it's not easy and it's not happening fast, you're, you're beyond just stress. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, so it's, it's worth checking in with somebody who is a professional and can help you identify what's going on with you. 
As a trained molecular biologist, and this is more of a technical question, what do you appreciate about psychiatric epidemiology, psychiatric disease, that maybe the a person in your field without that training, you know, competent and talented as they are, might not have? Um, well, the first thing that pops into my head of like that I just find fascinating um, was realizing at some point that depression phenotypes are not are actually kind of a feature of our biology, not necessarily a bug. Hmm. Um, and so this was when this was what I realized when I really started looking in or studying immunology um, during grad school before I got to the psych epi. Um, but I did get uh, so I started I started biochemistry and molecular biophysics as an undergrad, but I also got a degree in psychology. So I had abnormal and I knew all these other things about the brain and psychiatric disease back then. But for my PhD, as I started exploring, um, you know, cytokines and inflammatory processes and uh, what happens when you get infected with a, a worm versus a bacteria versus a virus and uh, these different immune responses. I may get a little technical here, but um, I was just blown away. I was like, wait, 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 wait. So your immune response when you get infected with a virus is actually the thing that makes you feel sick and tired and achy and groggy and socially withdraw and um, cognitively slow. And wait, your immune system is doing that? <laughs> it's your immune system. It's not the, the, the virus. It's, it's your own immune system kicking in all of these inflammatory cytokines in order to rush through and control your body and turn you into a lethargic, uh, withdrawing, um, slow person. So basically it can fight off the infection while you sit your ass in bed. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> then if you have stress, you, you know, if, you know, as we like to say about humans, not like we've been chased by lions um, super recently, or very many of us at any rate, um, you know, if, if the lion comes to your cave or whatever, and you're feeling sick from your own cytokines and your own immune system, trying to fight off, save your energy so you can fight off this virus that it's working on, but a lion pops up, all of a sudden, this whole other system kicks into place and suppresses that immune response and drives down those cytokines. And instantly you can jump up and run your ass off and probably do a whole bunch of things that you can't normally do on a day-to-day -day basis without that stress. <laughs> um, so it's just like, it's built into our biology. It's amazing. And of course, it doesn't quite work all the time. So especially. I, <laughs> I have a, a specific memory of giving a talk to a bunch of, of investors. So this, this was a, um, I, I was doing a, a pitch for a, a financial startup that, that tries to get wealthy individuals to put money into, um, into research causes. And I was the featured researcher and it was a bunch of wealth managers and wealthy individuals. And I was nervous. I was also really sick with a cold. And this was back in a time when you could still leave your house. If you, if you were coughing and people, <laughs> people would just be sort of annoyed, but they didn't think that they were going to die, you know, from uh -huh. your, from your exhalations. Um, and I thought, how am I going to manage this? This is like the worst cold I've ever had. And I couldn't breathe, but then I got up there and I was completely fine. Maybe, maybe the cytokine, <laughs> we're all suppressed in the immune reaction because of all the cortisol and adrenaline. <laughs> yes, yes. I suspect we had taken some blood draws prior to and during the talk and then following. And then I bet you felt real bad after the high <laughs> <Yeah>. went off. <laughs> right. And if any, if anyone doesn't believe that the immune response is actually what makes us sick, just think about asymptomatic spread of COVID-19 because these virus particles are budding from the cells in your, in your respiratory tract. And evidently, if your immune system hasn't figured it out yet, um, 
you know, you're still infected, you're infecting others, and uh, you're not feeling those, <laughs> those membrane bound oh. particles <laughs> being <laughs> burst out of your, your, uh, your cells. Yep, um, yeah. <laughs> which is why i've always anytime people people complain about the uh like oh well you know i got the vaccine or i got the booster and it made me feel sick for a couple of days and i was like good that means it's working <laughs> <laughs> well well did i get COVID? no you did not get COVID. it is a vaccine it doesn't work like that COVID. <laughs> but your immune system is what makes you feel like crap <laughs> So, so can you too long or at the wrong time or just popped off during the wrong period of time, like then of course our brain and biology and everything else that goes with it is going to be um, negatively impacted. So then that's when we have disease. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what is a typical day like for you at Dragonfly? Um, what sorts of activities do you you know, do you do how I imagine every day is different. Mm. Um, every case is different. Every, uh, client is different. How does it work? So I have a lot of meetings, <laughs> but they're all very different from each other. It's very exciting. It's very dynamic. Um, yeah. So my role at Dragonfly is CEO and uh, co-founder. And then, um, but what I do is really, where all the hats that are necessary at any given time. So um, there's there's a lot of amazing volunteers who have come in over the last two years and stepped into leadership roles and taken over different uh, leading different projects and different um, working groups and things like that. So I do want to start off by saying this is not a one woman show. This is totally a team effort. And, um, but it's, it has been really exciting and interesting and, and beautifully dynamic for me. I love it. Um, and so a fair amount of what I do is, uh, and because what has really taken off with Dragonfly has been our on-campus consulting services. So we work directly with campuses to bring them evidence-based programming in mental health literacy, Uh, skills training, as well as fighting stigma within their own communities. And so all of those things are wonderful and exciting and also tailored. We tailor them ourselves um, with our content experts, myself being one of them, uh, to the academic environment, but we engage with uh, clients. So we've worked with over Um, We've delivered over 160 programs in just two years to more than 20,000 academics in 15 Wow, that's wonderful. And so we're global, we're, uh, you know, working with all disciplines within academia. Um, And one of the things that one of our tenants is like, yes, we build as much universal principles um, that we, that we use as our structure and our backbone. But for every community, we meet with them uh, at least once, if not multiple times in order to engage and really understand what's going on in their community, at their institution, in their country, at the, you know, within their discipline, whatever the, um, the case may be, and find out where we need to tailor things. And that goes into every single program we deliver too. And then we work with them to also help identify what's going to be the most helpful first step for their community. Do they want to start with a general overview of mental health literacy or is burnout very clearly an issue and you want to start there? Or is it a mentorship kind of problem. So um, we just recently delivered a program um, focused on mentoring as a two-way street to the European Space Agency um, for their their postdoctoral fellows, which was just fantastic. (laughs) Um, But, you know, there were were a couple of meetings that had to happen uh, prior to that delivery where I met with postdocs that were in that programming. I I don't know what it's like to be an astrophysicist. let alone at their, you know, Europe's version of NASA. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's some conversations that should be had um, and surveys that we can do. And so building surveys, building content, um, speaking with clients, uh, connecting with folks that also want to build more um, programming and systems in their place. Um, 
I love connecting with other folks that, that want to do this uh, kind of work on the ground level. And so Dragonfly also supports those efforts, um, uh, especially for student groups, completely free of charge. And in fact, 70% um, of our programs are delivered uh, fully sponsored. So donations from supporters are really the, the so imperative for us to be able to function and operate mm -hmm. and continue to grow as well. And then one of the things that has just been inspirational to me has been bringing together these volunteers and finding out what they're passionate about. So I interact with a lot of my volunteers and other um, kind of executive leaders, as well as working group leaders to find out what they need in order to move forward different um, efforts that we have. So one of the working groups that was my has been my absolute favorite has been systemic change. And from that group's efforts of engaging with the general um, population, as well as internally with our, with our own 300 uh, volunteers from more than 45 countries, um, we were able to discern and distill kind of five major categories within which um, good sustainable mental health within an academic setting can be achieved. And then that was the keystone upon which we built and designed our comprehensive program. So we deliver these individual talks and workshops and things that are one to two hours. Um, and that's the majority of what we've done over the last two years, but we just launched with UC Berkeley and the molecular and cell biology department, a comprehensive three-year program to create fundamental and long-lasting change in their culture and climate. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. Is it usually at the department level uh, that, you, that reaches out to you or the division level or the campus level? Um, what's depends. the kind of mode? Yeah. So it's mostly individuals within some kind of unit, like a division or a department and also country to country, they're kind of called different things too. Mm -hmm. um, but the, um, so it's, it's often a faculty member or a student or a postdoc or somebody um, who has heard about Dragonfly and is just interested in creating change. They know, they know they need it, but they don't know how to bring it. And then mm -hmm. they talk to us and we figure out a path forward. So um, the way we, we, we recommend delivering programs is usually to de at departmental levels or, or the equivalent. So um, because there's so much benefit from getting everybody within a community that is contributing to the culture of that community on board and giving them the language, giving them the basic understandings, and then facilitating discussion within that nexus group, that is what creates change and awareness and destigmatization. Um, and so that's where we like and try to recommend working on kind of that level. And that's why we're doing that at, at Berkeley for the, at the departmental level. Mm -hmm. um, the, there are opportunities to do wider, uh, you know, school-wide or um, university-wide kind of approaches as well. And we can definitely talk about that, but there's so much difference between the history department and the math department, <laughs> the chemistry department and the molecular and cell biology department. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's just the, the engineering. I mean, so you're, you're now going um, uh, into this role that's, um, I'm curious what your, your kind of perspectives are about like, well, there's, there's engineering and then there's like, uh, you know, this kind of engineering and that kind of engineering and this kind of engineering and like, how much would it really benefit the entire community by having one size fits all approach to things? Like sometimes one size fits all works, but mm -hmm. very often, especially at the graduate and above level, I really am of the, uh, you know, persuasion that you have to find the reasonable breakpoints where culture is created. Um, and then work within that, that size, if that makes sense. <laughs> it does. And I think that's a, that's a great place to wrap up. Um, just uh, quickly, where can our viewers find you? So we have this beautiful website my brother designed for us um, <laughs> that is findable at dragonflymentalhealth.org. 
Um, we also have a YouTube channel that you can look up, uh, just search in YouTube Dragonfly Mental Health, and we have an entire channel. We make all of our uh, programs open access and available freely to anyone. Um, so you can check us out there as well. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn. Um, and so please, you know, feel free to follow us, connect with us there. And then we have on our website, um, a bunch of different forms that you can look at our contacts tab and, um, or contact us tab and either send us a general inquiry or, um, you know, contact us and say you, you're interested in booking us, bringing us to your campus and, um, or volunteering. We this is such an incredible group of people from all over the world and all different disciplines. Um, we're a little STEM heavy, so anybody else <laughs> um, is more than welcome, I promise. Uh, but yes, we love our STEM folks too. Uh, so please <laughs> reach out and, and express some interest in volunteering if you want. Um, we ask everybody to just do what they can when they can. So um, we're, we're building a worldwide community that's, that's really focused on making our, making everyone, making academia a mentally healthy place where we can all do our best science and research and enjoy ourselves. Awesome. Such important work. Thank you so much, Dr. Wendy Marie Ingram. Thank you for coming on the program. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Ideas in STEM Ed, a production of the Idea Engineering Student Center in the Jacobs School of Engineering at UC San Diego. This episode was edited and engineered by Sky Lee with theme music written and performed by John Viviani. Title art was created by Caitlin Wong. Special thanks to Sarah Eckerd for guest booking and marketing. The Idea Center works to promote community, success, and inclusion at all levels. To reach us for guest suggestions and other feedback, please send an email to ideadirector at eng.ucsd.edu. And to learn more about our programs, visit jacobsschool.ucsd.edu front slash idea. As a final note, the views expressed by me or the guests do not necessarily reflect those of the Idea Center, the Jacobs School of Engineering, or UC San Diego. See you next time.